Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. So if you're ready, why don't we, uh, why don't we just get right into the Word of God for this morning. We're going to continue along in the um, 100 Things series, and we're, we're working our way through the Bible, and we're trying to highlight 100 things that we feel are really important to know from God's Word. And the one we're on today is about a special event that happened after the walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt. Do you remember last week, Jason Pankow, our guest speaker, shared with us that Nehemiah returned from exile and, uh, under the Persian Empire and rebuilt the broken walls of the city of Jerusalem. And that was a, um, an amazing feat of great leadership and community working together. Well, believe it or not, those folks had only taken 52 days to rebuild that wall. And so now what we're doing is we're picking up on the tail end of that after the wall is rebuilt and the people still feel like something's missing. Now right now if you tune in on your TVs to just about anything, whether it's Nick Jr. or CNN, who's the person who's everywhere in the news right now? That's right, this guy, Tiger Woods. And I'm not going to add to the noise. I'm not going to um, somehow add my two cents to all that. It's certainly not our place to judge him. And if, if you have strong opinions, do your best to keep them to yourself. This is just another man. Here's why I'm bringing him up today. Because I think there's something important, at least, that we can learn from his story. Okay? And, and that is that it is possible to live a life that to everyone else seems bulletproof, absolute Kevlar life, secure in everything, and still have something going on inside that isn't quite right, that's something that still you yearn for, that's empty, it's broken. I mean, this is a nice shot of his $39 million house on Jupiter Island, Florida. He's, set, he's on track to be the first billionaire athlete. He's not quite there yet, despite what Forbes has said. He's openly denied it, but he's going to be the first billionaire athlete probably by next year. He's got a, a, a beautiful family, a couple dogs, two kids, a wife. He is one of the most marketable people in the country, probably in the whole world. In fact, a lot of his money comes from endorsements, and he's right now at the top of his game. So when you think about Tiger Woods, prior to all the news that broke out, he, he would be, in many people's minds, a symbol of the untouchable life. Everything flawless, everything strong. And yet underneath all of that, there's something going on inside this man. For the guy who has everything... He still needed something more. And I don't know what that was or what drove him, but I know this. It is possible to have an external strength and still not have security. It's possible that to everyone else, you look like your life is perfect. But inside, you know that something's missing. Something is weak. Now, I'm bringing that up because in the story that we're picking up on, in the story of Ezra, reading the, the, the law to all the people in Jerusalem, they had just finished building the walls of an entire city in 52 days. This is a collection of around 42,000 people. And they had, in 52 days, rebuilt the walls of an entire city. And I'm not talking about two by four with a little plaster and some insulation. We're talking about feet thick of, of stone and brick it was an impressive wall, and what a feat. So you can now imagine in the ancient world, when your city had its walls intact, there was a certain kind of visceral sense of safety that, that enveloped everybody. Today, we can't quite identify with that, but in the ancient world, when your city walls were up, 
you just felt like everything was going to be okay because no matter what threat came, you could run into the city walls, shut the gate, and nothing could touch you. Now, the people had just finished, and yet they were all sensing somewhere inside that even though the walls of our city are great, we still don't feel 100% secure. Something is still missing from the picture. And that's why as we pick up our story, these folks have an impromptu assembly where they just gather as one person and they demand that Ezra the scribe bring out the book of the law and read it for them. And so I want to point out a few things um, from this event, what we might actually call a revival meeting. Okay? That sounds like I'm, I'm speaking with an accent, but it, it's kind of like revival and a return to the Bible. And so I, I'm just going to coin the phrase revival meeting. And, and it's, it's an amazing event in the this, in this history of Israel. And I want to point out some things that, that we really need to learn about when a group of people return to the Word of God. And the first thing is we need to get hungry again for God's Word. We need to get hungry again for God's Word. Look at what the Word says. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. According to Nehemiah 7.66, there there were 42,360 souls living in the city of Jerusalem at that time. And it says that somehow something moved in them so that they all gathered as one man. That's a way of saying that without any formal invitation or leadership, it was as if something was stirring in everybody's heart to gather together in that place by the water gate. I I can't say that without thinking of Nixon. (laughs) But it's an actual gate where water came, came through. And here's the thing, I I, I was thinking about our own church. It's really amazing to me that every Sunday we all find ourselves together in this place. Because if you think about it, every one of us begins our Sunday morning where? In a really comfortable, warm bed. And Saturday night is not a night when we typically go to bed early, is it? It's the one night we partay, right? So we're up late, we're enjoying ourselves. Those of us who are older are partying a little more tamely, but nonetheless, We're lucky if we get to bed by midnight. Sunday morning, the alarm rings. How do you feel every single week? It is such a temptation to hit, even for me. Okay, mess if I just blew it off. But, but you know, it's tempting to hit that snooze button. But why do we come? There's no mandatory attendance. You don't get your pay docked if you don't come. Your mommy isn't making you come anymore. I hope. Well, some of you, your mommy is still making you come. But. It's amazing that there seems to be this inner magnetic calling, something inside of us, and I believe that is the voice of God. That when God stirs people, it's amazing that without any overt order, it's something in us draws us out so that we find ourselves here, voluntarily drawn forward by something like a moth to a flame. And I think that's exactly what was happening for these people. God was stirring. He was calling His people together just like He does every single Sunday here at our church. And isn't it so comforting for some reason when you pull into the parking lot to see the other cars there and to sense the activity and the buildings full of people and you see your, your good friends and it just feels right that we should all hear the call of God and find ourselves here week after week. And it says that this was no regular meeting. It wasn't some formal assembly because at all the formal meetings, it was only the men, the heads of the households who attended. 
But at this meeting, it was as if nobody could be kept away. God's Spirit was beckoning everyone, men, women, even the children, all those who are old enough to understand the Word of God were coming. And that really affirms our choice at Harvest to do our worship family style and to keep our, our youth group here with us during the service. I, I think it makes a lot of sense that it shouldn't just be the men, but everyone together as, as a whole large family hearing the Word of God together. And what, did, what was it that they were here for? What's interesting is that when they get there, it wasn't like Ezra says to them, I'm glad you all came. Now, sit down and be quiet. Pay attention. I have something to say to you. It wasn't the leadership telling them what they needed to hear, but the people were saying to Ezra, we want God's word. We have an amazing city wall around us, but we're, our hearts are hungry for something that this wall cannot provide, that this city cannot give us. We want the Word of God. And he gave them what they asked for. Listen to this. Some of you may not really appreciate this. We're not going to try to follow this pattern at harvest, but he read from it, meaning the Word of God, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. Early morning in Hebrew typically refers to that, that first light of the day, even before the sun pops out, and that's usually around 5, 6 in the morning. So he literally had the Word of God being read and expounded from dawn until noon. <clears throat> and in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand, and listen, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the, to the book of the law. Now, I don't know if that sounds like the worship service from your worst nightmare, but we're talking a minimum of around five to six hours, the people were just absolutely entranced by the Word of God. How do you explain something like that? Well, a lot of people explained it as, well, they didn't have television. So they were just hard up for entertainment, and the Bible has a few good stories, and why not hear something like that? I don't think that's the whole explanation, though. I think that any time people stay at something that long, it's because it's feeding a hunger that they cannot deny. How many of you have played World of Warcraft or watched 24, disc after disc after disc, until almost like 24 hours later, you realize you watched an entire season in one sitting? Have any of you lost track of time where everything just stood still and you couldn't believe that six, seven, eight hours had passed? Anybody have an experience like that? Am I the only one? Just raise your hand. Encourage me a little. Seriously. Just a little, something. Do you realize that every one of us knows what that feels like? When we have a hunger and something is feeding it, time doesn't matter. And you know, we live in a culture where we, we're, so, we're wringing our hands over, oh, don't start the service too early or people will be inconvenienced and they don't want to come. And we get protest after protest if the sermon goes a little too long, if the service ends a little bit late. But something amazing happens when people's hunger is met with that which satisfies it, time stands still, inconvenience disappears, you become totally unaware of the pain and the sacrifice because you're eating now. And something is right about that. I think one of the marks of true longing for something is that you just, you just don't think about what it's costing you. You think about how great it is that at any cost, you have access to that thing which your heart longs for. Just ask a young man who's courting a young woman. That's a picture of us from when we were dating. I, 
Man, we look so young there. What, what do you think? <laughs> I was trying to teach her tennis. I had no interest in teaching her tennis, but anything that I could just get my arm around her, you know. What's amazing is when a man asks a woman to enter a relationship, he's asking for, you don't have to look at that anymore. He's asking for the privilege of spending hundreds or thousands of dollars on her, spending hours in the car driving. I mean, she didn't pick up a single tab. She didn't get behind the wheel to drive to my house the 70 miles between where we lived. It was me doing all that. And you know what? For all the cost and all the sacrifice, I kept thinking I'm the lucky one. What kind of insanity is that? Cost me everything and I feel lucky. Because there's something about the longing of the human heart that when it finds what it needs... You don't sit there and measure the cost and tally the price. Like, I, I, I didn't have a calculator telling Jeannie, well, technically you would owe me about $16,540. And I didn't do that because I was winning. I think that's the heart that we ought to have. And I'm not saying you should create it. I'm saying that's the heart you should be looking for. If that's not the way you feel about God, if that's not a hunger you have for Him and His things, then it tells you something is off in your understanding of who He is and what He extends to you. You've somehow misunderstood the value which God wants to bring into your life, the amazing privilege that comes from God of the universe actually wanting any kind of relationship with you and me. He read from dawn until noon, and everybody paid attention the whole time. Now, why is it that it's so hard to find hunger like that for God's Word in America, especially today? Uh, like that, I've traveled all over the world, and I'm telling you, I've been in four-hour worship services where I felt like, man, I'm exhausted, and everyone else around me looks like they're ready for round two. I've just never seen it. It's so hard to find hunger like that for God's Word in America. And I'm wondering, why is that? Well, why is it? How do you explain when there's no hunger? Well, there's a couple reasons, right? But the most common one is the person's already full, right? The person's already full. I, the, other op, the other explanation is they're very sick, and appetite is one of the first things to go. Either way, you've got a problem. And what I'm wondering, I, I know for sure that the, the reason Americans typically are not hungry for the Word of God is not that they're already too full on it. Everywhere I travel, I ask groups of Christians, hey, are you all reading the Bible as much as you want to be, as much as you set out to do at the beginning of the year? And when I ask that question in any part of this country, do you know that the vast majority of Christians in those gatherings will always look right back at me and say, yeah, no, we're not really. So I'm going to ask my own church, because I've asked dozens of other churches, are you guys reading God's Word as much as you want to be? As much as you, you know in your heart of hearts you ought to be for your own sake. Don't just stare back. I mean, just, yes, no. I mean, no. How many would say really no? Not as much as I like. It's okay. You can, everyone else knows. Just go ahead. The people not raising their hands are either seminarians or liars. Okay. So we we know that that it can't be that we're just reading too much Bible and that's why we're full. Have no more Bible, please. I, I've eaten way too much last night. I know that's not the case. So then what else explains the lack of hunger we see? I think it's that we are feeding our souls so many other things that though our souls are being malnourished and starving to death, we don't realize it. 
Do you know there's this food, uh, celery. I, I heard this interesting fact about celery. They call it a superfood because it takes more calories to digest it than the nourishment it gives you. And so you could actually eat celery all day long and starve to death. What an odd concept. You know what I think? I think we are feeding our souls spiritual celery all the time. And it leaves us with this illusion that somehow I'm okay. You are starving to death in your soul without God's Word. You just are. You know, the Bible tells us in Deuteronomy 8.3, man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. What God is saying is that His Word is like food for the human soul, and if it's not coming in, whether you want to deny it or not, it is affecting you. Something you need for, to burn as fuel is missing from the picture, and you will pay a price for that. Nobody engages in malnourishment and lives to tell the tale for very long. You know, as a pastor, so often I, I get called into a person's life when things start to go south, and, and one of the first diagnostic questions I always ask them is, hey, have you, have you changed anything? Is anything missing from your life? And, and I'm always looking for the one particular thing, and, and invariably this is the case that at some point in this person's life, the Word of God stopped being important. Maybe they got busy. Maybe it just started getting boring. Maybe they had too much pain, and the pain was distracting them from wanting to hear anything else. But somewhere along the way, it's always the case, the Word of God left that person's life. It just kind of stopped being a part of that person's life. Whenever that happens something inside stops working correctly. You can count on it. Why is it that we don't feel enough hunger for God's Word today? And maybe what we need to do then is to go on a diet, to intentionally knock away from our lives some of the junk food we've been feeding our souls. I shared with you some weeks ago that I got rid of, uh, I stopped playing my Xbox 360, the game that was becoming an addiction and an idol for me. Some of you guys are really ticked off because your wives have not stopped giving you grief about that. I, that's not what I intended to do, but if that's what God's using it for, deal with it. All right? Let me tell you the aftermath of that story. I feel more clear-headed, more hungry, more engaged in life, more focused than I have in years. You can ask my wife. She's so happy right now. She, she's just so happy, it's hard to describe, with what she's gotten out of her husband. I'm happy with it. And it's amazing that when you cut off the diet of junk food, you develop this strong appetite for real sustenance, for things that matter. You know, I wonder if, if the fact that they would finish building the wall right before the start of the, the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah, they, they literally ended the, the construction days before the New Year. And there's something about the start of a New Year that gets people thinking about renewal. Isn't that true? Our own New Year is just around the corner, isn't it? Maybe you've already begun thinking about the changes you'd like to make in your life in 2010. Can I strongly encourage you that one of those changes ought to be a serious return to the Bible as a central part of your spiritual diet. That you would return to God's Word because it is the, the food for your soul. It is the one truth which trumps all other truths. You know, we've developed some reading plans. I will set them out 
before you on the resources table. Uh, and it's, just, it's not something you can take with you right now, but it's an example for you to look through. We will make it available for download on our website this week. We have two flavors of the Bible reading plan, the one-year plan and the two-year plan. <clears throat> for those of you who have never read the Bible cover to cover, let me strongly encourage you towards the two-year plan so that you will not fizzle out and get discouraged. The two-year plan generally is about two to three chapters, in some cases just one chapter a day, and it's pretty manageable. You can get through it reading the Bible in five to 15 minutes a day. Not so bad. And, and then the one-year plan is a little longer. I would encourage you, as you plan ahead for 2010, to plan on getting that plan and engaging in it. How many of you started the two-year reading plan with us at the January of this year? <clears throat> now, I'm not going to embarrass you by asking if you're still hanging with it, but if you want to, you can just start over or you can just keep plugging away. The important thing is don't give up because this is food for you. You need it. Let me give you a second thing that we learn. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that is, read God's Word as an act of worship. You know, I remember once I was speaking at a retreat and they were using an LCD projector, but the screen was kind of high, and the LCD projector just wasn't quite reaching it. And so I happened to be standing right there, and I had my Bible with my hand. I just hey, here. And I stuck my Bible under the projector, propped it up, and it was perfect. Out of my periphery, I see this guy just running from the other side of the room, and he looks desperate. He reaches me and goes, Pastor, please remove the Bible from under the projector. It's the holy book. You can't use it for such a base purpose. Here, let me get something else. And he put like a piece of wood or something there. But he looked like, like he had just witnessed me kicking an orphan or something like that. It was the strangest. He looked so panicked, like, like lightning was going to come down on our gathering because of what I'd done. Now, now listen, why am I saying that? The Bible is a holy book. Okay? It's a holy book. You don't roll cigarettes with the paper. You don't use it for kindling in your fireplace. I mean, it's one of those books that we ought to show it respect. But what makes the Bible anything other than just another book? The, the leather cover, the binding, the pages, what makes it different than all other writing? The only thing that makes the Bible holy is the God who stands behind the words that it contains. There is a word called bibliolatry. Do you know it? It is the worship of holy books, and in Christianity, it is the worship of the Bible rather than the one who speaks it. It is the man who rubs his face with the perfume-scented love letter his woman has written him, and he ignores the real woman completely. The letter is all he wants because the letter is already spoken. It doesn't say new things. It doesn't nag him. The letter is all important the one who stands behind the letter is forgotten long ago. I can tell you right now, it's possible to have the highest respect for the book of the Bible. I mean, there are purists who say, oh, Bible on your iPhone, that's sacrilege. That's not the Bible. Let me tell you something. What makes it holy in any format, in any medium, is that the living God has breathed those words for us. I don't care if it's on a web page on a fortune cookie, on a tattoo. The Word of God is holy because God is holy. Do we get that? And that's why every time we interact with the Word of God, it is, first and foremost, an act of worship. 
The Bible will have no power in your life unless you acknowledge the one who has spoken those words to us with his authority. Listen to this. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. For he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. Isn't it amazing what a universal, instinctive response that is when we respect somebody who's just entered the room? We stand. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. Lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. As Ezra opens a scroll, everybody rises. Nobody, they don't have to say anything. They rise because that's what we do when someone of greater authority than us has entered the room. And when he says he blessed the Lord, what he's saying is these are no longer just human words. When he blesses the Lord, it's a public verbal declaration that the one about to speak is not just another man like you and me. He is the living God and it frames everything. It changes the weight of the words that are about to be spoken. If you're having a hard time understanding that, let me give you an illustration, okay? You know how when little kids are playing outside and <clears throat> the one kid runs out of the house and he, he's out of breath and goes to his brother, hey, you have to give me a turn now with a new toy. Now, nine times out of ten, what does the other brother who currently has custody of the toy say to his sibling? Shut up! I don't do anything. And that's when the other sibling drops the magic words. But mom said! But mom said. What is it about those words, mom said, that instantly changes the complexion of that conversation? When I just say to my brother, give me that, he goes, who is you? Tell me what to do. Shut up and leave me alone. But the minute you invoke mom's name, what happens to that little transaction? The weight of authority enters the picture. Suddenly you're not just blowing off a friendly suggestion from your stupid brother. You have mom to deal with if you blow this off now. And that scares you a little bit. It's not just scary, it gives you a sobering effect a dose of reality. And that's what Ezra is doing here. Is he saying, if you hear these words as mere suggestions, as guideposts to a happy and fulfilled life, you will miss the boat entirely. And I think that's the reason that for so many in America, the Bible has lost its power, is that when we read it, we read it like God is making a bunch of really good suggestions about how He can add value to our lives. If that's the way you read the Bible, you've missed it entirely. When we read the Bible, the God of the universe is speaking now. That means there's the weight of power, authority, an element of danger enters the reading of that word. Because these are not words spoken by someone who's here to negotiate with us, who's here to give creative suggestions, this is one with authority who, when he speaks, he is accustomed to legions of angels standing at attention to do his bidding. Why do you think the Lord Jesus taught us to pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is done where? In heaven, where there is no more rebellion. Where there is no, oh, just a minute, Lord. There is just instantaneous acknowledgement of who God really is with respect to every other being in the universe. How thick, how heavy must God's presence have been in that worship service that day? 
that thousands of years later, we're still talking about it in this room right now. Now that's a worship service, one for the books. So great was God's presence that we're still talking about it today. I long for worship like that. And here's the thing. As he acknowledges that God is speaking, what is the response of the people? They repeat one simple word twice. It's the word, Amen. That's a powerful word. The word, Amen, is a word of alignment. You like that? What do you think? It's pretty good, right? It's a word of alignment. It's a way of saying, whatever God says, so let it be. We will align our lives with what God says. We will not take his word, chew it, process it, slice it and dice it and hack it up so that it makes sense to our world. We will move everything so that it conforms to the picture of reality that God is presenting to us. When it says, turn the other cheek, we will not go, you know, that's figurative. No one can live like that. So that just means, you know, kind of like be a little more gracious. toward. No, it means turn the other cheek. It means when somebody smacks you, you give them the other one and you just say, thank you, sir, may I have another? You don't defend yourself in that self-righteous way because God is your defender. That's the way we understand amen, amen. Is when God speaks, we're the ones who move and do the adjusting, not the other way around. I can't say that enough to all of us in America because we have this illusion in the States that everything is adjustable and customizable. I mean, we go into stores and everything we buy, we go, hey, can I actually get this uh, monogrammed on that? And the, the thing we're thinking is, of course we can, because everything can be bent to my whim. But suddenly we encounter God, and God says, listen, for you to have a right relationship with me, you need to understand that I define what's real. And any time movement has to happen, it's got to come from us, not from God. That's a very important aspect of reading God's Word because if we don't have that sense of alignment with God's authority, with God's Lordship when we read the Bible, then the more we read, the more we know and understand, the bigger our heads get, we get puffed up with knowledge. Isn't it the case, and you know this is true, that some of the most knowledgeable people with respect to God's Word are some of the most intolerable, arrogant people you would people you never want to socialize with. They know everything about God's Word and you cannot stand those people. I hope you're not thinking of me when I say that. But Do you know anybody like that who just has all the right answers? They have such strong opinions. I don't do this because... Blah, blah, blah. And yet there's nothing attractive about that person. You don't smell God on that person. They just love talking about God's book. And that's usually a telltale sign that the person has read and read, but not as worship, simply as intellectual development. And any time we read God's Word like that, it is dead to us. I don't care if you are a teacher who shapes the minds of others. If you don't read the Word of God as worship, it is dead to you. Dead. And the more you know, the worse you become the farther it draws you from God because first and foremost, the Word of God is worship to us. You know, a lot of people have been living their lives in Jerusalem safely ignoring God. His authority was not a big part of the picture of their lives. On that day, something clicked and they realized God is not one to be safely ignored 
or trifled with. You know, it's like in the immigrant community how a lot of um, people, maybe, I'm just hypothetically saying, in our parents' generation, didn't have the highest respect for the rules of the Internal Revenue Service. You know what I'm talking about, the cash-only business, if you know what I mean. And so it's this idea that this American system doesn't apply to us immigrants. We can safely scoff at this, the rules of the U.S. tax code, and no one's going to bust us. And a lot of those people have learned the hard way that you do not ignore the IRS's authority and live to tell about it. They will come get you eventually. That is the very nature of real authority, is that you cannot blow it off and remain safe and in good shape. It's important that whenever we come to God's Word, the first thing we establish is the authority and the power and majesty of the one who is about to speak to us through that word. Can I make a suggestion to you that when you get on your, on, at your desk or on your knees and you read God's word, say a prayer very similar to this one. You don't have to memorize this. Okay, This is not scripture. I just came up with it. But something in this spirit. God, what I am about to read comes from your mouth. These words carry your full authority. These words reveal who you are to me. What I read today may cost me everything. It may change my life. Help me say amen to whatever you say to me today. Do you see the flavor of that? And imagine if that was your posture every single time you came to God's ear. God's word. Why did the people go to Ezra when they wanted God's word? What was it about Ezra? Well, when you read Ezra, I, I, that says Nehemiah 7.10, my mistake. It should say Ezra 7.10. It says of Ezra, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. That's awesome. That's the commitment of a teacher, a leader, a, a pastor's heart, is to study it, to do it, and then to teach it. And in that order, really. There's a big difference between the phrases, I play piano and I study piano. Do you know the difference? I play piano could mean anything from I know how to play chopsticks, but when you say I study piano, that puts you in a whole other category. I play guitar. Pastor Matt studied guitar. He was a guitar major. There's a world of difference. We study what we take seriously, don't we? We study what we take seriously. Some of you might hate school. You're so thankful you're done, but you probably still study things that matter to you. If you doubt what I'm saying, just ask any guy who plays fantasy football. Right? Fantasy football. I heard this comedian make this hilarious observation about a week ago about fantasy football. Fantasy football is Dungeons and Dragons for the guys who make fun of the guys who play Dungeons and Dragons. Genius. And what do the two things have in common? Fantasy football and Dungeons and Dragons have in common this incredible body of information you have to collect. The level of inherent complexity you need to master in order to win at it. And it's really nerdy. Both of them are really... Because you have to sit there and be a complete statistician and memorizer of the most small, minute details. And all of it is imaginary. There are no 7th level paladins or you don't actually own an NFL team filled with stars you drafted. It's all make-believe and yet it requires an unbelievable amount of commitment to study everything related to it. We study all the time in our lives. We just don't acknowledge it to study because it feeds something that we love. We study those things we take seriously. 
And you know what, what people take seriously? Just get them going and watch, sit back and, and get a drink. They'll go on an hour lecture about the things they're passionate about. We should study the Word of God because in the course of study, it doesn't just reveal that we take it seriously, it leads us to take it more seriously. The things we study very intentionally, a whole new level of that thing is opened up to the person who becomes a serious student. Do you understand that? I mean, there are, I think one of the reasons the Bible is so boring to us sometimes is that we've only ever read it casually. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's like kind of glancing at the jacket of a book and saying, it doesn't seem that fun. You know, for example, how many of you guys are like me? You've never been interested in the Harry Potter books. You see these crazy crack of people, oh, you've got to read Harry Potter. And you're like, yeah, you know, I just never really got... But there are people who like live in the Harry Potter world. Just like there are people who live in the Star Trek universe and speak fluent Klingon. You know what I'm saying? There are people like that out there and in here. Okay? When you study something, it takes you to another place. It opens up a world to you that was previously unaccessible to the casual observer. We need to become serious students of the Bible because then we'll understand why the people who get into it are so crazy about it. When you give it a chance, something amazing will happen when you look into the Word of God as a serious student. I absolutely believe we should be personal students of the Bible. I get so encouraged when people from this church come to our office and ask if they can borrow a commentary or a book about this particular subject or that particular subject. I love lending out our books to you. I love watching you study God's Word. But let me give you, in, in closing, a couple other suggestions about how to become a student of the Bible. And one is seek out teachers who know and live out God's Word. You saw what it says here. Ezra had his heart to study the law of the Lord. And that's why when people wanted it explained, they instinctively turned to Ezra. Who do you go to? Who are you going to call? <laughs> Everybody over 40 said Ghostbusters. Who are you going to call? You go to the person who knows what they're talking about. And one of the, the marks of a serious student is that they first admit that I don't know everything there is to know about it. They intentionally seek out those who have more of that knowledge and they download all that they can. They just download. It's an orientation. And there's an, a certain amount of humility required in order to become an expert at anything. I encourage you to seek out teachers. I hope part of the reason you're at this church is that the Word of God is taught here with seriousness. If you ever feel like that's slipping, you need to tell me very forthrightly that you worry about that. Okay. Say it more gently than that. But if you ever worry that the Word of God is slipping from this pulpit, please challenge us on that. Challenge me. But it's not just preachers. There are so many great writings. There are, there are people who are now long since passed away who can still be your teacher if you read their great books. Study at the feet of those who have made their whole life's purpose to unlock the Word of God. Let me give you a second piece of advice, and that is study the Word in community. Not just alone, but study it in community. Also, Joshua, Bonnie, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shebathai... Hodiah, Maseah, Kaleida, Azariah, Jozebad, Hanan, Paliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained 
in their places. So as Ezra's reading and expounding, he's not alone. He's got a team of 13 other teachers who have now spread out through this crowd of thousands. And while the people remained in their places, the idea is, instead of everyone listening to one great talking head, the teachers had spread out among the people and in smaller groups were expounding the Word of God, hearing people's questions, taking their feedback, and there was this back and forth as the Word of God became clearer and clearer. And something amazing happens whenever we gather together and put our minds to the same cause. There are things I don't see that you will see. And even though I'm the senior pastor of this church, when I sit in our small group and study the Bible in Palatine Community Group, I learn something every single week because the other members of my group see things that I don't always see. They trigger thoughts that I wasn't thinking before, and there's value when we apply a community to the study of God's Word. And look at the result of that commitment. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and these teachers gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. That's a back and forth there. That's people wanting to understand the Word of God together. And that's an amazing thing. And it says a little later in verse 12, so the people, and I love the way this is, this is phrased. This is such a beautiful picture of what I hope our community groups will become as time moves on. So the people went away to eat and drink at a festive meal to share gifts of food, and to celebrate with great joy because they had heard God's words and understood them. A new year is almost upon us. And I know that you're planning to make some changes. I really sincerely hope that not all of them have to do with your physical body. I know that's a lot of it. You know, you're know, going to jog every day for like a mile and you're going to wake up at 3.30 in the morning and... Spend two hours meditating on your future and blah, blah, blah. You know, all that stuff is great, but if you can make one serious commitment in the year ahead, may it be as a church family that we return to the Word of God. Because if we don't do it, we will be slowly dying in our souls as we stand on our feet. And we will pay a very heavy price for that neglect. Let's go back to the Word of God. Cut out the junk food that's stealing us of our hunger. Regain that focus and declutter your life. Put God's Word back in. If you don't have a Bible reading plan, please go check out the one we have at the resources desk and then download it from our website this week. If you don't own a Bible, we would love as a church to buy you your first Bible. That would be one of our great privileges. If you don't have one, please make sure you stop off at the resources desk. Tell the person standing there that you need a Bible. They'll take your name and we will make sure that the next time we see you, you have a Bible in your hands, courtesy of this church. Let nothing stand between you and the Word of God in 2010. I believe He will do things in your life through His Word that you never thought were possible. And He will fill your life. Why don't we bow for a word of prayer together? I don't know if lately it's been your experience that when people try to talk to you about your life and about challenging you, you have a better attitude and all of that. You're hearing their words, but when you dig down into your heart trying to find a good attitude, trying to find some inner strength, it's just not there. It's kind of like when you don't eat breakfast and you're out playing ball with the, 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 your friends 
and you want to have that burst of speed, but it just doesn't come. Your body wants to obey your mind, but it doesn't have the fuel. We cannot grow spiritually unless the Word of God is nourishing our souls. Just sitting here breathing, sitting still, requires fuel. But growing, changing, requires even more fuel. And if you're not eating from the plate of God's Word, there is no way your life will move anywhere. You will sit still and stagnate, dead on your feet. Let's not let that happen to us. I'm going to invite you to bow your head and think about the year ahead. And don't wait till January 1. That change could begin today. God is drawing our hearts to read Bible. To return to His Word as central. Let's go to Him. Let's respond to Him now. That hunger that some of us feel deep down inside not going to go away just because we get a new body or a new job or a new lover or a new toy. Sometimes the only way to deal with hunger is to eat. That's that hollow feeling you have inside your heart. And the very best food for the human soul is God's very words. I'd like to give us just one more minute to chew on that and to make a commitment in our hearts that we will at the very least eat what God is feeding us. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.